There's a surprisingly large number of people who came to the Czech Republic right at the country's beginning in the early 90s, or even before, before it was the Czech Republic, and it was still Czechoslovakia, but after the Velvet Revolution. And those people have seen a lot of changes over the decades. One such person is Jonathan Stein, who first came here in 1991. He is currently the managing editor for Project Syndicate, uh, an independent news source. Hello, Jonathan. Uh, hi, Derek. It's uh, very nice uh, to be with you. Um, thank, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on, and thank everybody for listening to this episode of Prague Times. A city is much more than just a collection of buildings. It's a location, it's a history, it's a culture, it's ideas and ideals, and a city is also, most importantly, the people in it. This is Prague Times, the podcast that takes a look at the city of Prague in the Czech Republic. With more than a thousand years of history, there's a lot to talk about. We'll talk about the past of Prague, but we'll also talk about the city as it is today, future plans for the city, and much more. It's Prague then, Prague now, and Prague later. And this is Prague Times. Okay, Jonathan, so you, you came here, you told me 1991 is the when you first came here. Why did you come here? In a former life, I was a wannabe academic and I was in a PhD program and um, you know, these, uh, these massive changes uh, happened. I grew up with, you know, the Cold War and the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc, and, and I figured that that was uh, the normal. And, um, and then it stopped being normal and everything fell apart in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, uh, the communist regimes. And I thought this was, uh, uh, you know, uh, would be a very interesting phenomenon to observe. I helped to set up a program that brought young American social scientists to then Czechoslovakia. I think it was uh, 14 universities in Czechoslovakia at the time. And, you know, the universities had no real, they had no economics department. They had no political science departments. There, you know, sociology was limited to very controlled opinion polling. It was very, very bleak. And the universities were very eager to sort of retool. So we came in and I taught in the fall of 1991. I taught at uh, social sciences faculty at Charles and at Visoka Škola Ekonomická Veše, the economics university in Prague. And in the spring, I taught in Olomouc at Palatsky University. I really enjoyed it. I went back to the States for a year and then decided to come back. Uh, I've been back uh, and been living here and now the Czech Republic since 1993. Wow. Continuously. Yes, continuously. And of course, you know, you're, you you make a move like that at a point in your life when you're, you know, single and not going to be single for much longer. And that <laughs> happened, that change happened to me here. And I uh-huh. married, a, a, you know, a Czech woman and had Czech babies and got a Czech mortgage and the, <laughs> and the whole thing. And and uh-huh. the next thing you know, your life is is just here, mm. which I'm very happy about. Absolutely no regrets. No regrets. It was it was the right move. Right. It was it was it was exactly the right move. Uh, you know, and I got off the academic track back there in the 1990s. I published a book, an academic book that wasn't my dissertation, and I realized <laughs> that, uh, that this wasn't what I wanted to do. But I liked the writing. I liked the editing. 
I ended up for years working for the Economist Intelligence Unit, uh, covering the Czech Republic and Slovakia, writing long country reports uh, with political and economic analysis. And, uh, you know, I was also editing a lot of academic books for professors, for university presses. Uh, and that got me onto, onto, uh, onto Project Syndicate, which started out as a part-time job. It was one day a week, then two days a week. And I was still doing stuff for the EIU, the Economist Intelligence Unit. And I was sort of freelancing. And Project Syndicate just sort of continued to grow and grow until uh, about, uh, I guess, 2008 or so. I, I just I just dropped everything else and, and became, uh, you know, a full-time editor with them. And we've grown since then. And it used to be just me. And now there's, you know, there are, there are four other editors that, that I've brought on to handle, uh, you know, the increasing workload. So what is Project Syndicate in a nutshell? A very bold and interesting and fortunately successful idea. And the idea started back there in the early 1990s. There was an institution here in Prague called the Central European University, which then moved to Budapest. And now the Orban regime in, in Hungary has kicked out Central European University after many right. years of being housed in Central Budapest. Uh, and it went to, it's now in Vienna. But at the time, it started in Prague in the early 1990s, and they had a sort of an academic research project through their economics department, and it was called the Privatization Project. And they published, I think, three or four books on post-communist economic reform. In 1993, the it was wrapping up. One of the things that the privatization project had been doing was sending supplements. There were sort of feature-length supplements to newspapers around the region in post-communist Europe uh, about economic reform. And when the privatization project was going to close down, many of these editors from around the region said, well, what about these supplements? We like them. We use them. Will there be anything like that continuing? You know, the guys who were running the privatization project project didn't really think about this, but they thought, hey, maybe that's not a bad idea. Maybe we just start up a, a kind of a syndicate, these kinds of supplements and, and maybe commentaries. And well, what do we call it? Well, we don't know. We had the privatization project. Let's just call this Project Syndicate because that's the next project, right? <laughs> and of course, the name stuck and nobody ever changed it. It, it, it became a brand. And, and mm -hmm. so now it sounds like, um, you know, I work for, you know, some shady organization. And it sounds a little, it sounds a little mafioso. <laughs> right, right. Uh, it's got a, it's got a, I like it. It's got a certain cachet. It continued to grow from there. We got a, a couple of authors who were interested in the region who were very, uh, very devoted to writing and they wanted to write often. And that was Jeffrey Sachs at Columbia and uh, Joe Stiglitz, who went on to win a Nobel Prize. And, you know, he, th these guys have been our, our authors for more than 20 years, right? From, from the outset. I didn't join until 2001. It was already, you know, six or seven years old, but it was very small then. It was, you know, we were doing maybe 10 commentaries a month and had maybe 50 or 55 newspapers, you know, mainly in... Uh, in the region, in Europe. And, uh, you know, and, and now we have more than 500 newspapers and publications around the world. And we have, we, we publish probably 100, 110 commentaries a month. And we have lots of other, you know, features, interviews and long reads and a podcast and newsletters, uh, you know, various uh, other content that we're putting out, and and it works because the the model is 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 very simple. It's not a non-commercial model, um, and we operate you know on a nonprofit basis. 
any newspaper can join in any country. It doesn't matter if they can pay. If they if they're in a rich country, we're going to expect them to pay. If they're in you know a poor country, then they'll get our content free or or at a subsidized rate. That model has made it very attractive to a lot of authors because a lot of authors want to be read in developing countries, and the New York Times can't get them in there, or other press and commercial press syndicates have to make money. They can't go into you know a country like Mali or Niger and just give their content away. And right. we do, we can, and we and we do, and that's made us that's that's stood us in very good stead with a lot of authors. If you're Jeffrey Sachs or or Danny Roderick, a you know famous development economist, you want to be read in these countries. You don't want to only be read in France and Germany and Spain, where we also have member newspapers. The secret really has been that, you know, many of these newspapers, they can't get the Nobel laureates and the presidents and prime ministers that we provide them with. And so they so they join Project Syndicate and they and they take a feed from us, you know, when we, we tailor it, you know, to their needs. And we have, you know, four people here in Prague, their, their entire job is simply to manage these relationships. Well, when there's not a pandemic, they fly around the world, they go to conferences, they, you know, meet with the with our member editors, they find out, you know, what they're interested interested in what they want um, and they you know place new content that we have and and it's and, and many of the newspapers that we carried for many years you know a Kenyan newspaper for example Kenya has now had you know significant economic growth for the past decade decade and a half and we get you know a message from uh, you know our members in Kenya saying you carried us for 20 years now we want to start paying it's very gratifying to see that. That's not an isolated example. Many of our papers, you know, they've been paying and then they fall on hard times. They have to have budget cuts and we carry them for six months or a year or two years until they get back on their feet until they, you know, sometimes it doesn't work out. Sometimes they're just going under and that's the newspaper business these days. Right. That, that happens. But very often, you know, they'll come back and they'll say, thanks for carrying us. We, we now can, you know, start contributing again. And, um, and they do. Uh, mm. And, you know, and it works well for a long time just our syndication just our newspapers around the world that was enough to meet our budget obviously that's changed with a lot of publications moving completely online where the advertising revenues aren't there you know everybody's trying to get to a subscription model we are as well and um that means that you know we've had to turn to other sources we we you know now uh have a lot of grant parts that uh, that right. help to help board us but it's uh it's continued to grow we run a, a lean operation. We're not necessarily a household name, but in newsrooms around the world, we are a household name. You know, we're sort of behind the scenes. You often see, you know, the copyright project syndicate at the bottom of a piece, but you don't know what that is, right? You don't see, we're, tr we're trying now to kind of build up our own presence on the web, you know, through our own website, um, which is, you know, which is working. We're getting subscribers and it's, it, you know, and it's coming along, but still our syndication business is the bread and butter. But it's now it's up to, a, I think about a, a little more than 150 countries, uh, you know, have a project syndicate member. So it's, it, you know, it really is uh, global. And the, the other thing that needs to be said is that we only do commentary, commentaries on the news, on economic events, on trends, you know, something, uh, an issue like Brexit or the U.S. election will tie us up for months. You know, we'll just have so much, you know, material on, on, on those kinds of issues. We also have a lot of, a lot of stuff on development issues. We have a, we have a partnership with, uh, with the Gates Foundation, and they're very interested in immunization 
education in clean water and sanitation in developing countries. Mm-hmm. We run a lot of content on that stuff, a lot of content on women's issues and by women, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and very often, you know, in, in developing countries. It's a very, very broad range of, uh, of content that we produce on a lot of different subjects, everything from Islam and human rights to fiscal and monetary policy and China and Russia, and, you know, you name it, which keeps it very interesting. I mean, it's been a, it's been a very interesting job to have because you're constantly learning. So you were here all through that 90s privatization process that Václav Klaus, who was prime minister at the time, sort of spearheaded. Uh, Walk us through that. Walk us through how that happened, how that first round of privatization occurred. And then when the second wave of privatization coupons hit the populace, suddenly they could trade them and they all ended up selling them to investment funds, investment fundi and and things like this. Because, you know, Rob, Rob Cameron had mentioned that one of the reasons why the Czech Republic did as well as it did is because of this enormous amount of foreign investment. And so it'd be interesting to kind of, how did that happen? Czechoslovakia was in a very favorable position in 1989 in terms of its macroeconomic position. It wasn't like Poland where public finances were falling apart and you had to do extreme you know, austerity right from the bat. The Czechoslovak authorities had an entire year to kind of plan things out. They, you know, nothing really changed in 1990. Uh, throughout the year. That was when they kind of mapped out how they were going to carry out economic reform. And obviously, this was also a time when Civic Forum, which was the opposition or revolutionary movement that led to November 17th, 1989, that formed in the aftermath uh, out of the dissident movement. And it, it brought together former 1968 reform communists with a more kind of technocratic elite. And that mm. technocratic elite was led by people like Václav Klaus, who wasn't a dissident. He was sort of in this gray zone. Uh, he worked for Economic uh, uh, Forecasting Institute of the Academy of Sciences a lot of them did. So, so did Miloš Zeman. Many of the people who came from, out of that generation formed that elite came out of that Economic Forecasting Institute. And Klaus obviously was one of the driving forces behind breaking up Civic Forum, getting away from so-called non-political politics uh, and forming political parties. Um, and he formed the Civic Democratic Party out of Civic Forum. And that became kind of a, a very popular party because here was a guy who sounded extremely competent, uh, was very obviously very intelligent, knowledgeable. He spoke English. He spoke German. At the time, this was very impressive. He didn't seem like the others, you know, if they had been dissidents, they'd been great writers, but stoking coal for 20 years, you know, and right. and, uh, and there, there had been kind of some skills erosion <laughs> involved in normalization, the, you know, that preceded uh, 1989, uh, this sort of deep freeze, uh, you know, authoritarian communism. When they launched reform in 1991, they did it in two phases. There was a small privatization, which was all of the kind of retail stores and restaurants and, and bars and these kinds of things. Uh, and then a large scale privatization. When I first was here in 1991, small scale privatization was just getting underway. But, you know, Prague was, at night, it was a ghost town. There was nothing to do. Really, I mean, you just see sort of young people walking around 
round in the streets or in parks and looking in windows. Really, there wasn't much because small privatization hadn't, hadn't really uh, started yet. You know, things opened up very quickly and, and you know, kind of life was uh, returned to the city and to the country. And then large-scale uh, privatization began in 1992 with, as you mentioned, uh, coupon privatization was one of the big um, mechanisms used to transfer assets from state ownership to private ownership. Before that, there were a couple of big kind of foreign direct investment deals. I think, you know, as early as 1990, the, you know, Skoda Auto was just sold to Volkswagen. I mean, there was no way that you could make that company competitive, you know, in Europe or much less globally without a, a huge foreign strategic investor. I, I'm sure, I don't know the details of the deal and I don't want to mislead your, your listeners, but I'm sure that there were all kinds of sweeteners in the deal that the state gave them in terms of building infrastructure, tax abatements, what have you, because so much investment was required there by Volkswagen in order mm -hmm. to make that a competitive concern. And the state obviously had an interest in maintaining employment levels. They didn't want a massive wave of layoffs. So, mm -hmm. so all of that stuff you know, had to be agreed. I know that this was one of the, the main uh, economic policy concerns in 1990 for the government, even as it was planning out the rest of economic reform. You have to remember that Czechoslovakia was one of the most state-owned economies in the communist bloc, in the Soviet bloc. 96% of capital in this country, land and buildings and businesses, uh, factories, was owned by the state. I think it, East Germany and Czechoslovakia were the most, had the, had the highest share of state ownership. You know, then you had countries like Hungary that had kind of this goulash communism, a mixed regime. Poland had agricultural land in private hands. So the state had to offload all of these assets very quickly. It mm. wanted to do this. It didn't want to keep a lot of uh, property, a lot of uh, in-state ownership. The coupon privatization was a very kind of a novel scheme. The idea was that you would give everybody in the country, every citizen, a coupon book worth a thousand crowns. And it was politically an extremely savvy move as well, because uh, at the time, Václav Klaus was the Czechoslovak federal finance minister. And of mm. course, he signed every coupon book. His signature was right there with his name, and he was forming a he had formed a political party that was uh, going sure. to contest the 1992 elections. Mm -hmm. Everybody knew him. He had said he couldn't lose. You know, he was giving everybody something that they thought was valuable. But there was there was one problem with the scheme. You get a thousand crowns, and you're supposed to invest it in in some state owned asset. But which asset? Why? Who knows anything, who has any information, any financial information on any of these businesses that are being privatized? Well, certainly not Jan Novak. He has no clue. So what happened was these investment funds were formed. And obviously, one of the most famous is the Harvard Investment Fund, started by uh, a guy named Victor Kojany, who is now wanted in, in several countries, including this one, and it lives in the Bahamas. He was a, a, a corrupt actor. And many, and many of them were, unfortunately. What happened was that uh, the investment funds would run advertisements on the sides of trams, on television, on radio, saying, Get, sign over your coupon book, your thousand crown coupon book to us, 
and we'll return within a year or two years, 10,000 crowns. You'll get 10,000 crowns back. Many of these concerns, there was no enforcement, there was no regulation. Klaus didn't believe in any of this. It really, and, and many of these, these, these investment funds went belly up. Many people were never, never saw their 1,000 crowns, much less 10,000 crowns ever uh, again. But that, that sort of went with the spirit of the time, which was, look, we've got all of these assets. We'll, we're going to try to do this as fairly as possible. But, let's, but really, at some point, you just have to turn out the lights for a period <laughs> of time. And when you turn them on, that distribution of property is the one that you start with, right? And we go from there. You know, and, and look, I mean, if you trace the history of private property back far enough, you're always going to find theft. <laughs> you know, that's, yeah. that's just a, a fact. There, there's a reason why you don't do that, why you don't go beyond a, a certain date. And I'll give you an example from here. The coupon privatization and the small privatization of retail, this wasn't the only way that the state got rid of assets. Also, another very important channel was restitution of property to owners before the communists took over in 1948. They could reclaim factories. They could reclaim, in some cases, castles, uh, apartment buildings, all kinds of property. I, I, I once ran into, in the early 1990s, a young Canadian kid. He was in his early 20s, and he had just... Uh, He'd never been here before, but his family was, was from Prague. And he had gotten back a huge building downtown. And it, hmm. he immediately flipped it. And he, you know, he became a multimillionaire kind of overnight through restitution. A lot of people did that. And you, you may even still see buildings downtown. You know, you think, why is that building a wreck? Why is it unoccupied? It's because it's still in court. Because heirs have, have gone to court against each other, fighting each other for the asset. You know, and, and you still get these restitution battles playing out. The interesting thing, though, is, and this gets back to the kind of the trace private property back far enough and, you know, you won't go, want to go any farther. The restitution laws set a very clear limit on 1948. They weren't going to go back any, any farther than 1948. For example, they could have gone back to 1938. But if they'd gone back to 1938, then you'd be restituting victims of Nazi crimes, right? It, and it just became too complicated. Right. We got to draw a line somewhere. Eh, let's make it here. Right. At the time, there was a lot of nervousness about Sudeten German claims, right? Uh, you know, the people who had been expelled after, after 1945. And it was very interesting that this was not, privatization was, was not simply some kind of technocratic economic efficiency enhancing development. It had massive sociological implications. Mm. There was a, a poll, I remember back in the 1990s, who most of the population of the Czech population believed was deserving of restitution, right? And people who were expropriated, store owners, obviously, uh, they, they should have their property returned. Sudeten Germans, absolutely not. Catholic <laughs> Church, absolutely not. Aristocracy, absolutely not. Jews, okay. Yeah, they can, they can have some. Boost. It really became kind of a nation-defining act. You know, what are the boundaries of the nation? Right. That's also being defined by these property laws, these restitution laws. One of the interesting features of the of the economic reform here in the 1990s was, although state assets, state owned assets were sold off very quickly, one very important state owned asset was not sold off. Mm. And that was the financial sector the big banks. This is Commercial Banka, 
Československá obchodní banka, Česká spolužitelná. These were, there were four of them, and they were, they were really, really crucial to Klaus, the political success of Klaus's reform. Because what was happening, although Klaus came across as a very good sort of Reagan, Thatcherite, neoliberal, free market guy, he did two things that ameliorated the effects or the pain of reform on the population and that kept capitalism popular. One was rent control. He transferred the social welfare costs onto new private owners of apartments and apartment buildings, you know, and kept rent control in place. So that whereas, you know, in the West, policymakers think that a household budget, 25% or 30% of the income should go to housing expenses, whether rent or mortgage payments. Here, it was down to about 10% in the right. 1990s because of rent control. And that gave people a cushion that made the adjustment costs of, of the transition much more uh, bearable. The, the, other, the other important move was not privatizing the banks. Throughout mm. the entire 1990s, the banks were not privatized. And they became a kind of a substitute for the subsidizing ministries under communism. You could get the bank to simply subsidize that tractor factory in Moravia that was losing money hand over fist so that it wouldn't lay off the workers, right? You could keep employment up. Right. And that continued. You know, there was this gradual adjustment, but it, it didn't have to be because of the banks, shock therapy. Now, what happened at the end of the 1990s, of course, were the banks were in terrible shape. The banks had huge volumes of non-performing loans and, uh, and they, they had to be sold off very quickly. And uh, interestingly, the bank that was sold off first was CSOB, Československa Obchodni Banka. And it was sold to a, a Belgian bank. And it was, it was the first to be sold for a very, a very simple reason. It didn't own any of these coupon investment funds. It was not involved at all in coupon privatization, which ended up being a complete mess. You know, right. <laughs> because you'd have these coupon funds that owned these companies and the coupon funds then would be tied up with, with these state-owned banks and the state-owned banks would basically channel subsidies to the, the, the companies that its, that its own investment coupon funds owned. Right. Um, and this was a recipe for disaster. So at the end of this, uh, of this decade, these banks had to be sold off. It was no longer sustainable. And the first one to be sold off was, uh, was Chaso Bank because it wasn't involved in coupon privatization. Why am alone among the banks didn't have the, the foresight to say, no, you know, we shouldn't be involved in this. It'll be a world of trouble financially. <laughs> the, the reason was very simple. And I found this out because I actually around 1999 or 2000, the bank uh, hired me to write a study of their privatization. So I got to interview the entire board of the bank. They, they gave me all these materials and, and I was able to kind of dig in. And, and, and what I found out was, was it was very simple. They were historically, they were Czechoslovakia's trade bank. They settled all of uh, Czechoslovakia's external trade. They did not, they were not a retail bank. They were not a commercial bank at all. Uh, uh, and all of that got going for them only in the 1990s. And the guy who was the head of the bank, he had previously been, and again, this is kind of gets into the interesting sort of the sociology of the economic structure and the economic policy in the country. But he had been under communism. He had also worked for a Chaz Obama, he, and he spoke flawless English. 
And I said, where did you learn your flawless English? And he said, in the 1970s and 1980s, I worked for the bank in London. He handled Chaz Obez's business, settling, uh, you know, trade payments and so forth in the city of London. To have that kind of job in Czechoslovakia in the 70s and 80s, you can imagine what his connections were with the regime. And it was like, but it was like, but he was not alone. I mean, this was a class of people. I don't want to say that they were, you know, commie bad guys because they weren't. They were the technocrats, and you get them in any kind of regime, in a democratic regime, in an authoritarian regime. They're the people who keep the lights on, who keep the state running. It's not about Marx. It's about Weber. You know, it's about bureaucracy, keeping uh, things at least barely rational. And, um, you know, in terms of state administration. And that's what these what these guys were. And they rose to the top, you know, in this new regime very, you know, very easily. You remember that in the early 1990s, you were here. You remember that they had this lustration process, this lustration law that people who had co- collaborated with the secret police or had been above, a, you know, a certain uh, you know level in the Communist Party couldn't hold. Um, many state positions. The entire private economy was exempt from this. As companies were privatized, you know, many of the the people who had been running them, you know, in the past were kept on, whether they were running it now or whether they were now a deputy director or whatever it was, um, you know, and and somebody with a, uh, a, you know, an untainted past was brought in, uh, you know, above them. This happened throughout the economy, right? Because these were the people who knew what was what, you know, um, and, and you needed them. You needed them. These people very often, more often than not, do a very good job. You know, mm. uh, and they're kind of unsung. Now, was there um, a good bit of self-dealing on some of these people's part? Many of these people's part? I'm sure of it. Uh, you know, was was there... Uh, you know, corruption and bribery to get a, a building permit or to change the designation of a parcel in a land registry. Absolutely. I mean, you know, there, 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 there was tons of it constantly. And, you know, you could, you could see the kind of um, the ethic, uh, you know, back there in the, especially in the 1990s, just by uh, getting into a taxi cab <laughs> and, and not knowing what the guy was going to charge you. Uh, or you if you would reach your destination. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, and, and, and that, that un- unregulated taxi market, it did, it did a lot of harm to the country. Um, and this was another one of Klaus's uh, commitments to the free market that, you know, we won't impose any kind of regulation on, on, uh, on, on taxi drivers. And, and, it, and, it, and the country got a bad reputation for it. I mean, it really, you know, really, you get out of, uh, you know, off a train, you go to the train station and you're charged, you know, a thousand crowns to go three blocks. You know, you, you wonder about the country that you've just um, set down in. You know, I remember once getting into a taxi and I just wanted to go home. I'd been working late and I, I it was, you know, two in the morning and the taxi driver, we were driving along Magistral. And he, he points over to a club and he says, he says, you want a girl? I'm like, no, I just, I just, I just want to go home. Okay. Continue driving. There's another bar. He slows down. He says, you want drugs? Anything you want. I'm like, look, I just, we're on the right route. Just take me home. The third one was, you need somebody killed? That, that bar over there, 5,000 crowns, you can have somebody killed. 
And I'm like, okay. Well, hold on. Slow down a minute. I, I think, I think, no. Two, one or two people, you know, but um, <laughs> it wasn't uh, a, a, a taxi. Remember what it's like? We were in a group of people. Whoever spoke the best check had to sit in the front right. seat and engage the driver in chit chat so that A, the guy would think you were nice and not try and screw you too bad, and B, so you could keep an eye on the meter. Right. <laughs> yeah, was, those were the was, days it, you know i remember i remember this was 1991 i remember like walking into and restaurants were still state owned you know small right. privatization hadn't been completed and i remember walking into uh what was the it was right next to the slavia it was a restaurant next to the slavia and i walked mm. in with my girlfriend and the place was completely empty and i said you know table for two please and they said do you have a reservation <laughs> no i don't well i'm sorry you need a reservation right and i'm looking around it's completely empty but of course it's a state-owned restaurant so they're going to get paid whether they have customers or not so we're just more work for them why should they happily seat us and serve us so i went outside and i went to a payphone and i called the restaurant and i said i would like a reservation <laughs> and they said for when and i said for five minutes from now and okay i walked back in Okay, you have a reservation. I mean, it was just, it was this kind of bizarre That's Kafka. Uh, you know, mentality, right? Yeah. That's, and I don't remember, I don't know if you remember the magic phones that to appear. You know, like you, you'd come up out of the metro or get off a tram or a bus and there would be a, like a line and a payphone because yes. the coin wasn't dropping in the, pay, in the payphone. So people were calling their friends in Israel or Argentina, you know, and, <laughs> and, and, you know, and you could stay on for, you know, and, and things like that just happened. You know, it was, it was very, um, I remember, you know, in Olomotes, uh for two months in the fall of 1991, some kid in the mathematics faculty had figured out that if you dialed 0150 before any phone number, you could call anywhere in the world for free from any payphone in Olomotes. <laughs> And it was some old communist era, you know, code, uh, you know, the, for party bigwigs. And at the time at Czechoslovenskia Spoja, which was the telecom at the time, was on a two-month billing cycle. So they didn't find out about this for two months until, and then they shut it down, obviously. But so for two months, you know, you'd have people setting up party lines. I mean, it was, uh, it was hilarious. You'd have a, a, like a little gathering next to every payphone in the town. So that was then, back in the 90s, privatization, taxi cabs, and bureaucratic shenanigans. I'd like to thank Jonathan Stein, managing editor of Project Syndicate, for talking to me today. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much for having me, Derek. Absolutely. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Don't forget to check the episode notes for links to Project Syndicate and other things that were mentioned in this episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of Prague Times. If you liked this episode... Be sure to like it or share it and tell your friends. Check us out on all of our social media platforms for extra goodies as well. Until next time, this has been Prague Times. <laughs>